Um, probably about 10 years ago, maybe longer. I lose track of time. Anyone like that? Lose track of time. My, uh, my son Colton introduced me to a band. Um, the name of it is Need to Breathe. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. Sorry, this isn't supposed to be a commercial, but just, you know, thought process. Um, the lead singer of that group is a preacher's kid. And, uh, there's a song on their latest album, and, and one of the lyrics of the song goes like this. Just because you're guided by the light doesn't mean you make it every time. And um, probably since this past August, I have been meditating on Hebrews chapter 6. I, I, I can't tell you why. Uh, the Holy Spirit just led me there. And I've been kind of percolating on that for the last couple of months. And, and one of the ways I, uh, I've been thinking through as I've studied in Hebrews chapter 6 is, is how do I deal with disappointment? You know, just because you're guided by the light doesn't mean you make it every time. Maybe maybe this is just me. Maybe none of you here can can um, relate to this. Maybe none of you have ever had an unmet expectation in your life. Um, maybe everything for you has worked out just the way you imagined it would in every aspect of your life. And wow, I wish I was you. Right? But you see, the truth is, I, th- I think what's relatable for all of us is um, very frequently things don't go as we expected they would go. And now the challenge is, how do I respond to that? As a believer, how do I respond to that? Um, I find I learn um, best from looking at bad examples. And so what I'd like to do is take a couple of minutes of looking at some examples from the Old Testament and one from the New, and then we'll, we'll go into Hebrews chapter 6. Before we do that, let's just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful um, for this time right now where we can open up your word and quiet our hearts and meditate on what you've said. We ask for help from your Holy Spirit to help us understand what it means and then help us to have the strength to actually apply it to our lives. Again, we don't want to be uh, like people who glance in a mirror and uh, fix our hair and fix our face, and then as soon as we've turned away, we forget what we look like. Um, Lord, we, we don't want to be challenged this morning. We want to be changed. So we know that can only happen through the work of your Holy Spirit. So we pray that that we pray believing in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So very quickly, we're going to look at some things from the Old Testament here. Turn, if you would, um, to Exodus. It will start in chapter uh, the end of chapter 15 and uh, 15, 16, 17 rapid fire. Um, have some issues here. Things haven't worked out for the children of Israel as they thought they, ha- they were going to. Now, I'm going to make a lot of assumptions as we drive through this morning and um, th- that, you, that you have a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament. You remember a lot of the accounts, and I'm going to make reference to them, but we are not going to plunge in deep, okay? We're not going to go for a deep dive. So time in history, children of Israel are set free from 400 years of slavery. They didn't fire a shot. They didn't fight a single battle. They walked out of one of the superpowers on the face of the earth. They didn't fight at all. And not only that, that superpower's army had pursued them. And at the in one morning, this nation of Israel woke up and they saw that army dead, drowned on the seashore behind them. Gone! 
that's what's happened before we, we get here, right? Just setting the, setting the thing. The children of Israel, there's a lot of them. Verse 22, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, behold, they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bittered. Therefore, the name of it is called Marah, which means bitter. And the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? One of the ways uh, which you can respond to a disappointment is complaining. That's what these folks did. They, they, they complained. Right? Turn the page over to uh, chapter 16, and um, the Lord provides fresh water for them to drink, and then they move on. Um, and then verse 3 and uh, verse 2, the whole congregation of chapter 16 of Exodus, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Wow. They just ratcheted up the complaining, didn't they? Um, Let's keep going. We don't have time. To, to get deep into this, chapter 17. Then all the, verse 1, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Haven't this, hasn't this happened before? Yeah? Okay. Therefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide you with me? Where do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that hast brought us up out of the land of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Verse 4, And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. So one of the ways to respond to an unmet expectation is to complain. And in this case, they got angry. They got angry. Um, one of the ways we could, I'm going to give you four P words, and there's going to be overlap, and that's okay, because there's elements of these in the, in the examples we're going to look at. But what I want to put on this one is, is, there is the folks are doubting God's provision. They doubt God's provision, and that leads them to complain and, and to actually get angry. Get angry. Turn over, uh, if you would, to the book of First uh, Kings, chapter 19. Part of the account of the life of Elijah. And now, Elijah is no, like, he's no minor character in the Old Testament, right? Um, he is, he is uh, one of the, the big prophets of the Old Testament. He is uniquely equipped by God. And one of the things that has happened in the previous chapter, chapter 18, I'm going to refresh your memories, is in Israel at this time, there was rampant worship of a, of a false god called Baal. And it's, it is the popular thing. And it has really supplanted uh, the worship of Jehovah in the nation of Israel. 
and um, things sort of come to a head. I, I, I encourage you to read chapter 18 if you haven't read it recently. And uh, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest. We'll meet on a mountaintop. We'll set up a sacrifice. We'll pray to our God to um, burn, burn up the sacrifice. And whoever can demonstrate that they're the true God who can burn up the sacrifice, that is the true God. And the worshipers of Baal were like, Baal's the God of fire. This is going to be so easy. We're going to own you, Elijah, right? And so this, 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 whole, this whole object lesson takes place. Living, this is history. It really happened, right? Do you guys remember what happened? Have you you've read the story? It's amazing, right? Prophets of Baal set up their sacrifice. They pray to Baal all day. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Elijah sets up, rebuilds the altar, 12 stones, right? One for each tribe. Puts the, puts the wood on the altar, sacrifices the bull, puts that on the altar. Then has 12 barrels of water dumped on the altar. He digs a trench around it so it can hold the water. Now listen, if you want something to burn, soaking it with water is not the right way to go, Right? So the thing that seemed already impossible now becomes, it looks like, even more impossible. And Elijah prays a very simple prayer. And what happened? In front of this huge congregation of people, on the top of a mountain that could be seen from miles, whoosh! Fire comes down. It doesn't just burn the wood and the sacrifice, it burns up the stones the altar is made of. And it, the, the scripture says the fire laps up the dust around the altar and laps the water out of the trench. Burns it all! There is nothing but a smoking hole left in the ground. What a tremendous victory! Holy cow! No pun intended. Right? What a demonstration! Of the power and the might of God. That has just happened when we get to 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's start there. And Ahab, who's the king, wicked man, told Jezebel, that's his wife, a more wicked woman, all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more so also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which is about 70 miles away. Now, I didn't drive 70 miles to get here this morning. That's a long way to run which belonged to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Immediately on the heels of this amazing demonstration of God's power, Elijah, who's a solid dude, right? He's a man of God. His life is threatened by the queen, one woman. He runs for his life. 
and he runs all the way out literally into the middle of nowhere. And he sits down under a tree and he starts to pout. And he says, God, just kill me. End my life. Turn over the page to, the, to a little farther into the chapter. I wish we had the time to, to look at the story because God is so gracious to him. So gracious to him. And God supplies his need, and, and Elijah goes farther out. And uh, picking it up at the end of verse 13, God reveals himself to Elijah in a very unique way and then says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's a great question. What are, you, what are you doing out here? Out in the middle of nowhere, there's nobody around. There's nobody to minister to. There's nobody within a days and days and days travel of someone that he could show to them the, the power and the presence of God. There's nobody around that Elijah can minister to, right? Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Um, a bunch of years ago, I was up at Camp Berea, and there was a wonderful old preacher up there who's now with the Lord, Dave Stifler, and he spoke on this passage. Some of you may remember Brother Dave. And Dave said, Elijah had, had eye trouble. Look at this verse. See how many times he, he talks about himself. I, I, I. You see, when you get to a place where you doubt God's power, you can become um, very self-absorbed. Yeah, all he could see was himself. And, and, and that kind of thinking leads to depression. It, it leads ultimately to, to despair. And, and, and that's where Elijah is. Man of God. Used in a mighty way of God. He was in the middle of this thing on Mount Carmel. Central figure. Almost immediately afterwards, here he is, depressed. God, just kill me. Just kill me. He doubts the power of God. Turn over, if you would, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. See, I cheated. I put bookmarks so it wouldn't take me long to get there. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 35. Um, uh, they're on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Lord has just preached um, uh, a wonderful sermon again. The disciples have been part of that, uh, seeing this going on. Verse 35, in the same day, when the evening was come, he said unto them, now look, listen to what he, Jesus says to his disciples, let us pass over onto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there was also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat against the ship, so that it was now full. Now, um, we live close to the shore. Any of us have been out in a small boat fishing? Anyone been out in a little boat in rough weather? Okay, I, I've been out when like legitimately six-foot rollers, I was green and hanging over the side and could not wait to get my feet back on solid ground, right? Those are just six-footers. That it, it wasn't, it was, in a lot of ways, kind of just another day in Long Island Sound, right? These dudes are in a storm, and most of these guys are fishermen, 
And they know when it's bad, and it's bad. And the boat's filling up with water. And look at in the next verse. And he, that is Jesus, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. How tired would the Lord have to have been <laughs> to be asleep in the stern of the boat in the middle of a storm? He, he was exhausted. He was tired. And they awake him and say unto him, you know, it's funny because, like, the page is two-dimensional, right? Just flat surface, words on a page. Imagine yourself in a little boat at night in a storm, and you're sinking. Do you think they came to the Lord in the stern of the boat and said, Do you think that's how the disciples approached him? Master! Why are you sleeping? Look what they say here. I love this. It's just mind-blowing. Master, carest thou not that we perish? Don't you care? We're about to die! Think about that for a second. Why did Jesus come? The, the patience of the Lord just continues to amaze me because how could you not respond with something sarcastic at that moment, right? right? What is motivating the disciples at this moment? Fear. See, they are doubting God's protection. They're afraid because they are doubting his protection. Don't you care that we're about to die? And he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? How is it that you have no faith? What was Jesus referring to when he said that? He was reminding the disciples of something he said to them when they got in the boat. What did Jesus say to them when they got in the boat? We're going to the other side. Listen, there was no way they were not getting to the other side because Jesus said, that's where we're going. And when Jesus says, where's your faith? That is exactly what he's referring to. Why did you think we were going to die here? I, I, I said we're going to the other side. You see, when we let our fears loose, not only do we doubt God's protection, we can also get to a place where we doubt God's purpose. Don't you care that we're about to die? So, not an exhaustive list, but just four uh, for our consideration this morning. When things don't go the way we thought they were going to go, four possible responses are um, to complain, to get angry, um, to be self-absorbed, narcissistic, I, I, I. This, don't you know this is all about me and I'm not happy? We can just be afraid. 
when we doubt God's protection, we can think evil of his desires for us when we lose sight of his purpose for us. There's two elements, I think. There's at least two. There's probably more. Again, I'm not that smart, but I only came up with two. There's two elements that, that, that happen here. One is um, that that's part of, that's part of um, disappointment. What, one is there's either a real or a perceived loss, a real or a perceived um, something didn't go the way I wanted it to or thought it would go, right? Real or perceived threat. And and the other part of that is there is some level of immaturity as to the character of God. When when those two things come together, that's that's when there's these disappointments, and that's when there's these bad responses to them, right? Either a real or perceived loss or threat, and then some level of immaturity about who God is. Now, I hate being called immature. It, it really grates against me. <laughs> but the older that I get, the more I realize really how immature I am in my thinking about God. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 6. And let's just uh, take a look at, um, we're not going to be able to dive deep into the whole chapter here. It's a chapter that's the, the first uh, eight verses are, are a bit of a challenge in, in um when I was a younger Christian, uh, caused me some uh, hard thinking. Um, and, and for that reason, I think this chapter gets, uh, well, steered around a lot. Um, but the second half of the chapter is so incredibly encouraging. It is so encouraging. And um, I have, I've now shared this message a couple times over the last couple of months. And every time I come back to it, I, I, just, I find another nugget in here that the Lord has, has laid in this, in this passage that is just so encouraging. So my purpose here this morning is not to, to, uh, to like expose myself as sort of an immature knucklehead, but actually to get to the, to the Word and say, these are things that we should cling to. These are the cure or the helps that we have in Scripture, some of them for times of doubt or times when... Things didn't go the way I thought they were going to go. Again, uh, the book of Hebrews, as the name suggests, is written to Jewish Christians. So they would have a very complete understanding of the Old Testament. And there's a lot of imagery that's used in here that it's referencing back to the Old Testament. And so if you're not familiar with that stuff... A lot, of this, a lot of these references just go, will go right over your head, okay? But there's a lot of detail in here um, as we study through, and I'm, I'm probably going to be able to call attention to a few of these things as we look at this. Is it? Wow, okay. I have six minutes to cover the topic that I want to cover. <laughs> okay. Let's start. Um, verses 1 through 8 is particularly... Uh, uh, verses 4 through 7, are, or 4 through 8, are very challenging. Um, but basically, to sum them up, it says this. Listen, if you, if you uh, are involved in um, Christian things, that you've heard the gospel, and you have been in the presence, and you've seen the power of the Holy Spirit displayed in people's lives, and you've been, you've been around that blessing, and you come to the conclusion that, nope, 
I don't want that. There's no other option. That's what the writer is saying here, right? When it says you, there's no way to bring someone back to redemption who have rejected the claims of Christ. Listen, because there's, there's no other way to go, right? There's nowhere to go. There's no plan B. There's, no, there's nothing you can take from another column on the menu of salvation. It, it, is, it says here in verse, um, in verse 6, uh, those who reject the claims of the, of, the, of the Lord Jesus with full knowledge and full understanding of who he is and what he said and what he's done, um, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 6, that is verse chapter uh, verse 6. You're welcome. You see, the thing that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, remember the Romans crucified Jesus, right? Not, not the Jews. But when Pilate said in, in um, the 18th chapter of John, what shall I do with your king? Their response was, we will not have this man reign over us. Crucify him. And that's, that's what this reference is to. So if the attitude of someone's heart is, I will not have this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the folks who actually said that knew full well what Jesus had done. They know he had made the blind to see. He'd made the lame to walk. He had made the dead to rise. That stuff, was, as Scripture says, wasn't done in a corner. It was done out in the open. Right? And if the attitude of your heart after seeing all that, after having the judge at Jesus' trial three times say, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. If the attitude of your heart is, no, I don't want that. Okay. There's no way to get to God then. There's no way back. Verse 9 says this. The writer says to these folks, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So he's, he's speaking about folks who were, who were once part of but have now abandoned the faith and left, rejected Christ ultimately, right? Verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed towards his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. How do we show, um, how do we work for God? How do we, uh, the love, how do we show love towards his name? By, by loving his people. That's what the verse says. By loving and ministering to his people. There's two words in here, or two phrases. Your work and labor of love. Um, that word, if we unpack that word work, it, it means uh, the thing that you occupy yourself with, like, like all of us probably have a vocation or something you do every day, right? We don't wake up every morning and go, ah, what, what will I do today? We don't, we don't, most of us don't wake up like that. There's, there's stuff we got to do. It's work. It's what we do, right? And whether that's inside or outside of the home, it's still work. Now, labor of love is an interesting word or phrase because as you unpack it, there's something that's sort of um, understood within that, within that phrase. That labor of love involves, um, and this is just flat out of the Greek, it means you get beat up while doing it. Right? This work that you do that takes a toll on you, that beats you up a bit. Now, brothers and sisters, have you ever tried to love another brother or sister in Christ, whether inside of your family, and at some point kind of taken a bit of a beating for it. Can you relate to that? 
Has it ever hurt to love? Well, God is not unrighteous to forget your work. He's not, he hasn't missed it. He hasn't forgotten about it. He hasn't skipped over it. God sees. He sees. Verse 11, we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. The writer of the Hebrews says to the saints who are diligently loving and laboring, showing their love for God and their love for his people, keep, up, keep it up. Keep doing exactly what you're doing. You're doing great. Yeah, it's hard work. Yeah, you get beat up for it. Yeah. But keep it up. Why is that? Verse 12, that you be not slothful. Slothful. Sloth. Great word. I haven't, I haven't done the work to research this, but I don't know if the animal sloth was named because the word sloth already existed, or they named the animal a sloth, and then it became a word. I don't know how that went. But, um, again, I'm not doing another commercial. There, there is a Pixar movie called Zootopia, where all the characters, they're not humans, but they're personified animals. And in Zootopia, this land that's entirely peopled with, with animals, the workers at the Department of Motor Vehicles are all sloths. If there's anyone here who works for the DMV, I'm really sorry, but yeah. <laughs> so what characterizes a sloth? They move really slowly. There is no sense of intensity in them at all. There's no sense of urgency at all. So here's the instruction by the Holy Spirit. Do not be like that. Do not live your life with no intensity. Do not live your life with no sense of urgency. Do not move slowly. Be purposeful, to use that, this wonderful new word that's really flying around in Christendom. Be personal. Did I say it wrong? Purposeful in, your, in the way you live. Be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit. Notice it says inherit. doesn't say earn. Who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And now what's going to happen in the next couple of verses, the writer of the Hebrews is going to draw attention back to Genesis chapter 15 and um, the Abrahamic covenant. And we're not going to take the time to dive into that because I'm already over my allotted time. But let me just sum this up. Abraham was a dude who's old. He's old. And his wife is old. And he doesn't have any kids. And God reveals himself to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a father of great nations. And Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, a father of many nations, verse 6 says this, and Abraham believed. He believed. And it says, and God reckoned him righteous because of his faith. Folks, that's an important account. And if you go back and look at the book of Romans, that is the foundation of Christian faith, right? Being declared righteous by God, not based on anything that you've done, but just on faith. I, God, you said it. I believe what you said. 
Abraham's old when God says that to him. And then God affirms that with a promise, again, which is going to be referenced here, but we're not going to get into. Affirms it through a covenant. What's Abraham's son's name going to be? Abraham, Isaac, thank you. His son's going to be Isaac. How long does it take from when God makes this promise to Abraham to the birth of Isaac? Abraham's already old. Did I mention that? Sarah's already old. It is at least 14 years. It's at least 14 more years before Isaac is born. Did Abraham ever doubt that God was going to keep his word? Didn't. Didn't. Is 14 years a long time? I would say that's a significant amount of time. Through faith and perseverance, he believed and he kept on believing. You know, it would have been a miracle if Isaac was born the day the, or, or conceived the day the promise was given. 14 years later, at least, when Abraham's older and Sarah's older, Isaac is born. Abraham inherited the promises. He didn't earn them. Inherit means it's, it's bequeathed to you. Typically, the example would be through your family. Because you're part of a family. That's how you come to an inheritance. You're part of a family. Right? We're going to skip down um, for the sake of time to verse 18 that by two immutable things, that it was impossible for God to lie. And what, what are those two immutable, immutable things? Or, immutable means unchanging or, and unchangeable. There's two immutable things that God said to Abraham. First, he said it out, right? I'm going to make you a father of great nations. And then he confirmed it with a covenant. And we can go back and look at that some other time. So those are the two immutable things, unchanging things, um, that are being referenced. But by those two immutable things we might have a strong consolation. Not just a regular consolation, but a strong consolation. Now, Abraham was, was promised to be uh, the father of many nations. Now, is that, is that the promise we're talking about here that we can now be a part of? Well, sort of, but not really. What's our hope? In Christ. And he's where? In heaven. Anyone here want to go to heaven? Anybody? That's my hope, right? My hope is heaven. And heaven is only heaven because there's Jesus there. Right? That, that's, that's heaven is where the Lord is. Is that your hope? Okay, good. That's, I'm glad you're here. We might have a strong consolation. Why would we need to be consoled? Well, 
because sometimes things don't go the way we thought they were going to go, which is why the folks in the first half of the chapter had fallen away. They fell away because of persecution. Things things weren't happening the way they thought it was going to go. So they gave up. We have this strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What is the writer talking about here? We don't have the time, but if we went back to 1 Kings, um, both in chapter 1 and I believe in chapter 3, you guys remember how um, both the tabernacle and the altar, the layout, um, the, yeah, the tabernacle and the temple, there's the altar is the first thing you come to, right, when you, when you walk in. Right? No, the altar's first, the laver's behind it. Yeah. Coming from the outside in, the laver's between the, alt, the uh, altar and the, the holy place. And so the way the altar is constructed, remember, it's a square. And probably the easiest way for us to think of it is like a four-poster bed, right? There's, with fire in it, obviously you don't sleep there. Um, But there's, the four corners have posts coming up. And they might have been curved outwards, but they're referred to as the horns of the altar. Whether they were, you know, perfectly plumb and vertical or whether they curved outward, they were called the horns of the altar. And uh, again, uh, the altar's square, right? Any way you approach it, it's the same, right? Interesting. More imagery there for us, right? But the deal was this. They would bring animals in to be sacrificed, and they would tie them with a, with a rope, because you can't have them wandering around inside the courtyard of the temple. They would tie them to one of the posts of the altar until it was their turn to be sacrificed. The altar is a place of death, right? An animal that is brought there, it, there's only one way it's going to end, Right? Now, there is one exception to that. There was a provision that if someone was seeking mercy, they could flee to the tabernacle or the temple, and they could lay hold on the corners, one of the horns of the altar, and plead their case. Now, mercy wasn't guaranteed, because the case would have to be heard, but that was, that was the appeal, essentially, to the Supreme Court. They could go to the place of death, and seek mercy. Do you understand the imagery here that the, re- the writer is saying to us? We have this strong consolation, this strong, comforting, immutable truth that when in your life things don't go like you thought they were going to go, and your heart is broken, and you don't know what's going to happen next, you're either scared or angry or turned in on yourself and you're doubting God's plan for your life and you're doubting God's power in your life and you're doubting God's purpose in your life, there's a place you can go and a horn you can cling to. It's a place of sacrifice. And for us believers, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the place of death. We can go there And we can cling, as the song says, to the old rugged cross. And when we do that, we are reminded of the very same things we are reminded of this morning at the Lord's Supper. 
that as, a, what a, as big a wretch as I am and as unworthy as I am and as big of a failure as I am, the Son of God died in my place, unasked for by me. He did that out of abundant love, requiring nothing else from me. And the blood that he shed at that place of death purges all of my sin. And when I do that, I'm also reminded of some other things. That if he loves me like that, I can certainly trust him for the rest. If he loved me like that when I was his enemy, wanting nothing to do with him. He loved me that he gave himself for me. There's no reason for me to doubt his provision. There's no reason for me to doubt his purpose. There's no reason for me to doubt his power. There's no reason for me to doubt anything about him loved me and he gave himself for me we have this strong consolation it is immutable what Christ did on the cross is unchanging and unchangeable it is fact doesn't end there though does it it's not just dead He didn't just die. He is risen again. Risen again, seen by hundreds of people. Verified. And while standing right there with his 12 disciples, or 11 disciples at this point, if you don't believe me, go back, read Acts chapter 1. Right there in front of them, he was received back up into heaven. Which is why he isn't still here right now. right? Because he died once, never to die again. And now there is the man-God in heaven, as our brother shared from Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, one who perfectly advocates for us before the Father. How do I know that? Let's keep reading here. Verse 19 of Hebrews 6. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Um, you guys have been really patient with me. Can I tell you one more quick story? You guys, have, my dad was in the Navy. Okay, um, let's talk about anchors. What do anchors do? They hold a ship. Brother Steve Price shared this, and I've never forgotten it. I've actually written it in the margin of my Bible. What an anchor does is it conveys the stability of the earth to a boat that is in an unstable environment. It conveys stability. That's what an anchor does. It does that in an invisible way, right? If you're in a boat and you can, and your anchor's on the deck, it is doing you no good as an anchor, right? So when that anchor is out of sight is when it's doing its job. Now, part of the analogy for when we typically think of anchors is that makes the boat stop. So now there's no movement. 
my dad was in the Navy. Uh, he was on a surface ship. He was on, uh, for part of the time he was in the Navy, he was on a tank landing ship, an LST, landing ship tank. I don't know if there's any Navy veterans here in the room, but okay. Oh, all right. Thank you again. Um, and so the way LSTs worked back in the day, the Navy doesn't have them anymore, is uh, you, they were, uh, were flat-bottom ships, okay? They didn't have a pointed keel like most ships do. They had a flat bottom. And they could fit about uh, a dozen or so tanks inside or trucks or whatever. And the way you, what you wanted to do was get the stuff that was in the boat on a beach so it could go do the things it needed to do. And you didn't have someplace like a harbor that you could conveniently unload them. So LSTs were designed to drive up on beaches. And the way that this would work is you would wait for high tide and you'd pull the ship oh, about a mile or two offshore and you would drop the stern anchor off the boat. And you would make sure that it was secure. And then the captain would rev up the engines and they would drive the boat all the way up onto the beach. They would wait for the tide to go out and now the boat is sitting on a safe beach. They open the front doors, they're like clamshells on the LST. The doors would open, a ramp would go down, and everybody and everything that was inside could walk or drive out literally on dry ground or sort of damp sand, okay? How do you get off the beach? Close, bring up the ramp, close the clamshore doors, you wait for the tide to come back in, but now the engines aren't strong enough to pull the boat just by going in reverse to get it off the beach. How do you get off? We actually pull the ship off the beach from the anchor that you dropped off the stern. The anchor isn't keeping the boat from moving, it's actually drawing the boat back out to where it belongs. We have an anchor, sure and steadfast, one that is never going to slip, it's never going to break loose. Where is that anchor anchored? Where's that sure place? Look at the verse says, which entereth into that within the veil. Where's, again, Jewish reference, right? Think of the temple. What's inside the veil? Holies of holies. What's so unique about the holiest of holies? That's where the presence of God is. That Shekinah glory, that cloud. That's where the presence of God is. Our anchor is in the presence of God. Jesus Christ is in heaven in the presence of the Father. That's where our anchor is, and he is the one who day by day is drawing us back to where our home is with him. If you get to a place where you're discouraged, where things aren't going the way you thought they were, refresh your memory with this. My anchor is in heaven in the presence of God, and he is drawing me back to the place that he has prepared for me. Things may not be going right now the way I thought they would, but nothing is going to stop him taking me home. My anchor is sure and steadfast and in the presence of God Almighty. That will never stop. It can't be stopped. Whither the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus. Um, that word forerunner, 
is a Greek word meaning, <clears throat> it's a military term, it means recon unit. Where does the recon unit go? The recon unit goes where the army is going to follow. It just reinforces what we just talked about. Jesus has gone before us into the presence of God so that he would lead the rest of his people coming behind him, this army of saints, into the very presence of God. Brothers and sisters, if you're at a place in your life where you're doubting God's power, God's provision, God's purpose, God's protection, come back to these immutable truths. We have a place of sacrifice we can go to. There's a horn that we can cling to and be reminded that Jesus paid it all on Calvary's cross, that he loves me and he laid down his life for me, that he lives again and he, as the anchor of my soul, is in the very presence of God and he is drawing me back to himself. That can never fail. And be encouraged. Be encouraged. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your son. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room because uh, I know they live in the same world that I do and that there are hurts and that there's disappointments, that there's sorrow and that there's a heartbreak all throughout this room. Oh, Lord, may the truth of who you are and what you've done encourage each one of us. Help us to not live our lives afraid. Help us to not live our lives complaining or angry. Help us to not live our lives just inward focused and thinking all the time about how poor me I am. But help us to rejoice in you and what you have done, and what you are doing. Father, we look forward to the day where we are in your presence. When your son, even as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, has that opportunity to present us before you in love. Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself for me. Thank you that you are the anchor of my soul, sure, and steadfast. Thank you that you are not unrighteous to forget anything that your children do to minister to your people and showing that we love you. Thank you for that. Bless us now as we part. Bless us now as we continue in prayer for this assembly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.